morning. Welcome to Gateway. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Ed, and uh, I'm one of the pastors. And we have been, for many weeks, working our way through the Old Testament book of Exodus in a series of messages that we've called Rescued, because that's what happens in the story of Exodus. The people of God get rescued. And I'd like for us to start off this morning, let's back up, helicopter up to the, you know, 10,000 foot view, and let's ask a couple of big questions as we approach this today. First, why do we do this? Why, why do we study an Old Testament book like Exodus? And then in a second, we're going to talk about what our mindset should be when we do this. So why, why are we studying this Old Testament book, going through it passage by passage? Why do we do this? And I want you to know that the point is not more information. The point is not to learn more about the Bible. I really appreciate there have been several of you over the last several months who have said to me in one form or another, you know, I just don't know anything about the Bible. There seem to be some people here who know so much, and that's awesome, and I love that curiosity. It's a good thing, and I'll talk about why in a second. But let's be reminded this morning, we're not just after the information. We don't study the Bible so that we can know more about the Bible. We, we have no idea, in fact, if Jesus schooled his disciples in the books of Moses or the prophets at all. He may have, but it's interesting that there are really no references to that kind of teaching in Jesus' biographies. Information about the Bible as an intellectual exercise, just knowing more, is pretty worthless. And when I was a kid... I used to think that was, the, I mean, I thought it was boring, but I thought that was the thing. I thought that was the point, to know more. You know, the way to get closer to God was to know more, do more Bible. Uh, the Pharisees, if you know those characters, if you know the New Testament, they, they had more information than anyone at the time of Jesus, and they completely missed it. The point of what we do here on Sunday mornings, the point of our lives, really, is, is to grow in our ability to love God and to love others. I'm going to say that again. The point is to grow in our ability to love God and to love others. No, no more, no less, no asterisks, no compromise in that. That's it. In fact, Jesus himself told us that the, the whole story, the whole deal of God's dealings with human beings, everything, he said, can be summarized in this. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, Love your neighbor as yourselves. So our aim is to learn to live and to love like Jesus did. Okay, if that's the aim, then why do we spend time working our way through a book like the Exodus? And why do we want to know that story? Because if we want to love God, and we do, then a part of that will be knowing about him. Uh, what does he value? How does God operate? What's he capable of? What does he think? What does he expect of us? As I was falling in love with my wife, Diane, and I know some of you have had this experience, we would spend countless hours, oh, and when I was in the sixth grade, I, I threw up all over my friends. Oh, really? Well, tell me more about that. How could that be interesting? But when you're falling in love, it is. Because we want to know as much as we can about one another. And the sole source, the same is true for God. As we fall deeper and deeper in love with God, we want to know about God, what, what he's capable of, what he expects, what, what, what uh, he wants from us, what, what he thinks about. 
And the sole source for faultless, dependable information about God is the Bible. So uh, that's why we look at it. The, 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 the information helps us toward the goal. That's why we cover the story. That's why we dig into the details of it. Ultimately, it helps us to love God and love others. Okay, so how do we, how do we, how do we approach this? How do we, what should our mindset be? What should we be thinking about as we, as we read through? And I'm talking personally, the, uh, us here on Sunday morning, but also you personally. As we, as we look through a book like Exodus, how do we approach it? Well, we, we really read it with two things in mind, two, two kind of different mindsets. Number one, we read it for the kind of information I was just discussing. Not just to know more stuff, but to be more acquainted with God. Uh, we read it to learn things about how God operates, what He's capable of, what He values. So we ask questions like, what does this passage tell me about God? And, and how does this passage point me to Jesus? Then when we face trial or difficulty in our real lives, or when we experience blessing and joy in our real lives, then we can reference what we know about God, what we know about ourselves, and that will help govern and shape our behavior and our choices. Second kind of mindset that we have as we read this, when we read this book, as with all of the Bible, we read it devotionally, meaning we ask questions like, what are you saying to me right now, God, through this? How might this apply to what's going on in my life right now? Again, we're not looking for data or information so much as we're asking, how does this address me emotionally, spiritually? How does this address my current circumstances? And it does. It really does. Sometimes it takes some work to get at that question, but oh, it is, is it worth it? Now, it's highly unlikely that you or I will face an infestation of gnats or flies this coming week, and that's what we're talking about today. But there are patterns and principles in, in the story that will have application for us, and sometimes you'll, and some of you have found this, sometimes you'll stumble into things later and you'll realize, oh, that's why I read that yesterday or this morning or earlier this week. Okay, with that in mind, Let's break into our story today, and we're looking at, we're at this part of the story, if you know the story of Exodus, we're, we're at the story where Moses is confronting Pharaoh, and really, God is confronting Pharaoh, and really, God is confronting the gods of the Egyptians, and, and Moses is praying about, and then going to Pharaoh and talking about, it, and then calling down all these mishaps, these, these plagues. On the, on the nation of Egypt and on the Egyptians. So today is the third and fourth plague, and we're going to start with Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. Exodus 8, 16 through 19. And this is the plague of gnats. Doesn't that sound lovely? Then, then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand uh, with, his, with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But, but when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not, and the gnats were, were on men and animals everywhere. So if you've been following along, you, you may remember that up to this point, Moses and Aaron have done this, and then... Uh, 
Pharaoh has called together all of his court magicians and they've performed the same thing. They've done the same trick by, the scripture says, their secret arts. But this is the first time they can't do what uh, uh, Moses has done, Aaron has done with his staff. Uh, and I want you to notice here through today, you'll begin to see in both of these instances, you're going to see a, a deepening of the distinction that God makes between himself and the gods of Egypt or between uh, God's people and uh, the people of Egypt. For example, as I said this at the first time, the magicians can't duplicate the plague. Verse 19, the magicians said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart would not listen just as the Lord had said. This is the finger of God. That's pretty amazing. Pause there for dramatic effect. Now recognize that may have been something like this is the finger of the gods. But, but this, this seems to have been a genuine humility on the part of the magicians. However, there's no, there's no real conversion here. Be sure to recognize that. Notice the magicians don't use the name Yahweh. They don't say, this is the Lord, but they say, this is the, this is the finger of God. They use the general name for God. And Pharaoh is unmoved, just as God said he would be. So this is the third plague. First, uh, Moses turned the Nile into blood, and then frogs invaded the land, and now gnats. And with each plague, it seems like God is upping the ante. He's increasing the pressure, and he's magnifying the difference between his people and the ancient Egyptians. Okay, and now we're going to read the fourth plague, Exodus 8, 20 through 32. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, let's do some spiritual aerobics. Go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. We'll read 20 through 32. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, along with me, it's, it's brief, so you don't have much, but you will play the part of Pharaoh. So when it comes to Pharaoh's part, you will read with me, and I'll have it bolded and underlined in the text. This is uh, Exodus 8, 20 through 32. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction, remember that, between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow, and the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by the flies. Here comes our part. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, that wouldn't be right. The sacrifices we offer our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their, detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? There's going to be social riot, unrest. Amen. We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, 
I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, As soon as I leave, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Spoiler alert, he does act deceitfully. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. You may be seated. The late Charles Schultz, he was the author of the Peanuts cartoons. He once wrote a humorous book called What Was Bugging Old Pharaoh? And the truth is we don't know exactly. Uh, in the case of both of the bugs mentioned here, translators aren't 100% sure what bug is being talked about. It, it could have been gnats and flies like our translation reads or it could have been lice and beetles or it could have been mosquitoes there are several other possibilities for both bugs but one thing is clear the bugs were overwhelming they were everywhere and they were a powerful nuisance and maybe worse you remember in verse 24 it says the land was ruined by the flies isn't it fascinating that with this fourth plague with the flies uh, Pharaoh begins to negotiate. Okay, okay, you can take a break to spend time worshiping your God, but you've you got to stay local. And as part of this negotiation in verse 25, he, it's interesting, he calls God, your God. Pharaoh still doesn't get it. He still doesn't recognize what he's dealing with. He still doesn't see who God is or what he's capable of. And listen, so often we don't either. We mistake God for a big helping hand in the sky that can help us when things get really bad. Or someone super kind who gets us out of our messes. Or we see God as the solver of humanity's biggest problems. World hunger, the war in Ukraine, the suffering of children. In fact, we're mad at him when he doesn't solve those problems. Or we see God maybe as the big guy. You know, like my grandmother was really into God, the big guy. Oh, oh, and I believe in him. Don't, don't know exactly what he is, but I believe he's there. For many of us, God is really like the head of the math department. In our minds, life is like an equation, and, and if I plug in the variables with the right solutions, then it should work out the way it, it's supposed to work out. God owes me that. God promised that. So if I behave and if I act responsibly and if I go to church sometimes, then life is supposed to work out. Or at least there shouldn't be any serious troubles. You see, Pharaoh's responses, don't miss this, Pharaoh's responses throughout these dialogues were driven by how he viewed God, and so are ours. Pharaoh's responses throughout were driven by how he viewed God, and so are ours. So, I wonder, how are you most like Pharaoh? How are you most like Pharaoh? In maybe refusing to believe what's right in front of you, or in denying God's activity, or in not understanding who you're dealing with, or maybe negotiating with him at times, or other. How are you most like Pharaoh? The way you view God 
dramatically impacts your behavior. So you're going to find yourself making a mess of things in relationships or just in a series of really bad choices one day, and it's going to be because you had the wrong concept of, 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 of God and how this, how this works, how life works. And because you're not, you're, not, you're not taking into account what he's capable of and what he wants for you. Good stuff. That's what he wants for you. Okay. There are ways that we're like Pharaoh or maybe we're more like the magicians. No, I'm not going to make you do that again. They, they, were, they were able to acknowledge, look, the magicians were able to acknowledge that something amazing had happened. They recognized that God was involved. That's the finger of God, Pharaoh. And yet, listen, their recognition produced absolutely no change in their behavior or worldview. How much are we like that? Oh, that was a really interesting talk today, Ed. Okay, back to my real life now. If you were here two weeks ago, you may remember that we talked about how our God wants to have a relationship with us. And think about how we started today. We said, he doesn't just want us to know information about him. That's pretty worthless. He wants us to love him and to love one another. That's the point. So the magicians recognizing something crazy, even supernatural, was happening. Wow, boss, this is the finger of God. That's just not enough. God wants a connection. He wants a relationship. And he clarifies that. He brings that into focus. He clarifies that truth. And he makes it fully accessible to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Some of you know this. Jesus told that first group of his followers and us, listen, this is how people will know that you're my disciple, colon, by your love for one another. Not by how much of the story of Exodus you've memorized. Not, can you quote that song? Tell, tell me what John 3.16 is. You're in trouble if you can't. Jesus said they'll know we're his followers by our love for one another. By the way, there's never been any deviation from that point, from that central focus. There's never been any other plan or any other alteration of that throughout history, throughout God's dealings with humanity. That's always been the point. There's never any altering of that for us as individuals. There's no other way to think about it. There's no compromise. There's no compromise. There's only God showing himself through his great deeds and through personal revelations, and finally showing himself perfectly through his Son. And there's only us loving him, worshiping him, obeying him, and then flourishing in him because of what Jesus has done. That's it. There's only God showing himself through his great deeds, through his personal revelations. And some of you have had times when, oh God, I, I see that. He shows himself to us finally and perfectly. He shows himself to us through his Son, and then there's only us. Loving him, worshiping him, obeying him, and finally flourishing in him because of what Jesus has done. That's it. Let's take a sidebar for a minute. Let's step apart from the account. And uh, let's talk about, uh, I said we were going to do this. We'll do this more than once through Exodus. But how are we supposed to think about all these weird supernatural things that happen in this story? All the aspects of this story. How, 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 how do we organize that? How, what do we think of that? You should know it has often been argued over the years that the progression of the plagues here 
uh, was very natural and explainable. In that case, the incredible thing about it, of course, would be Moses' timing. How did he know that it was going to happen right now, today? Which, of course, we would think is God's timing. That's how we would explain it. In other words, the miracle here, given this explanation, is that Moses, uh, God gave Moses insight into exactly when these natural phenomena would be happening. But they were natural phenomena. There have been many explanations. One of the best attempts at this kind of explanation was offered by Dr. Greta Hort. She was a, a German ancient Near Eastern scholar, and she argues that the plagues are a natural phenomena occurring in the order that such natural phenomena were, would occur in nature, with some of the plagues being the result of well-known seasonal Egyptian happenings and, and some being the result of immediate prior plague that led to the next plague. In her scheme, anthrax figures prominently in several of the plagues, and I, I, want you to I want to show you just the first four plagues and how she works this out. We, we won't show you her whole scheme. But Thomas, go to the next slide if you would. She says, plague one, the Nile became blood if you remember. Well, the cause of that was the unusually heavy rainfall in the upper Nile headwaters. Again, I'm taking the time to go through this because many of us have these kind of thoughts anyway. What, what, what in the world do I think of this? Uh, the effect of it, of course, would, the flooding would bring red dirt from the Ethiopian plateau at the headwaters of the Nile all the way into lower Egypt. Added to this, the reddish color of certain microorganisms, they serve to multiply both the red color and the pollutant effect, making the Nile red, undrinkable, and poison to the fish. So that's what would have happened for the first plague. And then go to the next slide, Thomas. She says for the second plague, remember frogs. Well, the cause of that is the polluted Nile and rotting fish breed Bacillus anthraxis or anthrax. And the effect is the frogs leave the Nile because it's uninhabitable and they just invade homes. They're everywhere. And then they die off suddenly because they're killed by the anthrax. Plague three then, she says, is swarms of mosquitoes, not gnats in her case, but mosquitoes. And the cause of it is perfect breeding conditions in the stagnant water as the Nile recedes are just these pools, eddies of water everywhere. They just breed massive amounts of mosquitoes, huge swarms of mosquitoes, which bite humans and animals. And let's do one more, Thomas, if you would. Next slide. Plague four flies, particularly the breed that carries anthrax, and there is a breed of fly that carry anthrax uh, very effectively, cause, again, perfect breeding conditions in the stagnant waters the Nile recedes. And the effect is in, in, uh, ingestion during grazing by animals and biting of humans eventually causes also plagues five, cattle anthrax, and plague six, human skin anthrax, or, or ours is translated boils. And this is how she, it goes on, this is how she analyzes the plagues. Now I have to say here, as I've said before at Gateway, I am a natural skeptic. And I usually love these kinds of explanations. There may be, in fact, something to what Dr. Hort is saying, but I have also learned from me, and this is a word of caution to the rest of us, I've learned from me that I have to trust and I have to lean heavily into the text itself because this is God's Word. There are suggestions in the text that would allow us to think about Dr. Hort's analysis, but there, there are other hints in the text that point in a more completely supernatural direction throughout this whole process. For example, you remember in today's passage how amazed the magicians were? 
They told Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, I know that's a small detail, but if these circumstances were just dramatic examples of naturally occurring phenomena, even seasonal phenomena, I doubt we would have gotten that kind of reaction from the magicians. This is the finger of God. No, they would have said, oh, I get the flies, but boy, I've never seen them like this. Also, the plagues become increasingly difficult as you go along, you may not be surprised, for Dr. Hort to explain. She continues her explanation, but in, in my opinion, with less and less effectiveness. Why do I bring all this up? Because I know that many of us read these stories and we go, wait, what? what how, how in the world am I supposed to think about this? And actually, I want to affirm that kind of questioning. Because that means, in a sense, you're trying to take the account seriously, and that's what we should do. Plus, you're not thinking anything that others before you haven't thought. So ultimately, as we said last week, the important thing is for us to keep ourselves tethered to the text itself. So bring your questions, all of them, and bring your analysis, but stay attached to the text. All right, let's go back to the account. It's just interesting to me that with this fourth plague, Pharaoh begins to negotiate. Uh, I don't think Pharaoh has been up against a, a foe quite like this before. And God had told Moses this time to go early in the morning and meet Pharaoh down by the river. And can't you just imagine Pharaoh's trying to go through his morning routine and he's like, oh no, not you again. What is it this time? Same message, Pharaoh. Yahweh expects you to let his people go. If you don't, you're going to be overrun by flies. And if you thought the gnats were bad, you ain't seen nothing. And, and, and this time it's going to be different. This time the flies are going to swarm over you here, but they will not touch the people in Goshen, my people. By the way, uh, by way of explanation, in verse 23, Moses says this, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. Do you remember that? I said, when we were reading it, I said, remember this one. That's so fascinating. Because what God literally says there is, and some of you will like this, what God says there is, I will put a deliverance or I will put a redemption between my people and your people. That's a, that's a literal quote. You see, that has always been God's purpose. Throughout the entire saga, he wanted to make himself known and he wanted to set his people free. He wanted to make himself known and he wanted to set his people free. That's the point of the Exodus. He wanted his people to be redeemed so that they might flourish. That's what God does. He's still doing the same thing today. He's making himself known as he sets us free. And at this point, Pharaoh began to show signs of fraying and, and he began to negotiate. All right. You can go worship God, but you've got to stay local. And at this point, Moses shows us what it looks like to be a man after God. Remember, the plan doesn't change for God. There are no alternatives. So Moses doesn't compromise. Moses doesn't compromise. He demonstrates an obedience to follow God's desires and that alone. You know, Moses could have thought, wow, that's pretty good. I mean, Pharaoh has come a long way, and he's willing to let us worship. That, this works. After all, that's the point, that we worship God. It doesn't matter where. You just got to worship him. 
But that's not what Moses does. Moses knows that God is after freedom. God is after deliverance. God is after rescue because that's what God has told him. So in response, you remember first Moses offers a practical defense of his position. In verse 26, he said, that wouldn't be right, Pharaoh. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And and if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? And that was true. Some of the animals which the Jews used for sacrifices were sacred to the Egyptians. And and this would have caused social unrest. This this would have been an uproar. But then, then Moses gives the real reason for his rejection of Pharaoh's offer. He says this, verse 27, We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Moses explained, Mr. Pharaoh, we must do what God says, not what you say. There's no compromise. In God's plan, there is never any compromise for the believer, which requires that there be no compromise from the believer. This is a process that works itself out over the course of our whole lives. But make no mistake, this is the direction that we're headed, living without compromise. That's the direction he's taking us. I like the way Charles Spurgeon explained it. If you don't know that name, Charles Spurgeon, he was a a 19th century British pastor who was world-renowned even in his day. Spurgeon said this, quote, God's demand is not that his people should have some little liberty, some little rest in their sin, no, but that they should go right out of Egypt. Christ did not come into the world merely to make our sin more tolerable, but to to deliver us right away from it. He did not come to make hell less hot or sin less damnable or our lusts less mighty but to put all these things far away from his people and work out a full and complete deliverance. Christ does not come to make people less sinful, but to make them leave off sin altogether. Not to make them less miserable, but to put their miseries right away and give them joy and peace and believing in him. The deliverance must be complete or else there shall be no deliverance at all. End quote. I'm going to ask the worship team uh, to come back up as they come. come back up and as they come look even after we come into a relationship with Christ even after we've begun to take our spiritual life with the utmost seriousness we are constantly tempted to stay in Egypt we are tempted at times to take up the worst of our Egyptian ways they're they're what we've known They're they're how we've coped. They've been a long time sense of pleasure for us. Plus, it may be even more tempting to make small and and not so small compromises. Often there's a way to offer God partial obedience without disturbing the rest of our commitments. Let's understand this together. That's the battle for us. Sometimes we think the battle is figuring out how to seize happiness from our current circumstances or or how to find our way back to normal. We just want to feel normal. That's the battle. Or or how to bring some peace to ourselves. Or things are so chaotic. How do I bring equilibrium? And that's the battle. But that's not our fight. Our fight is to find God and get in touch with His purposes without compromise. That's the battle. And once we've done that, 
He will bring peace. He will bring equilibrium. And he will bring the happiness that we seek. I want you to forgive me for a second for my potential arrogance here. But I suspect that if you're the kind of person who's trying to work at religion, you won't understand what I just said. But if you have a relationship with Christ, you will know what I mean. There's only God showing himself through his great deeds, through personal revelations, finally and perfectly through his son, Jesus Christ. And then there's only us loving, worshiping him, obeying him, and ultimately flourishing in him because of what Jesus Christ has done. There's no alternative. There's no compromise. Is there some area of compromise that uh, God is speaking to you about? Is there some little part of Egypt that you're keeping with you? Some way in which you're wanting to go back to, I don't know, the old habit or uh, the old way of thinking, the old relationship. It may even be a new relationship. You're just doing it in the same way. With the same kind of whatever you do, control, obsession, whatever. Is there some area of compromise? That's the battle. Finding him, finding his purpose, and following it without compromise. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we are so often confused. We, we battle with ourselves, uh, with our families, with our workmates. We battle our circumstances. If that could just change. We try to figure out how to get this or that done, and we think that's the battle. That's not it. And this morning, Lord, we remember you have called us to leave You've called us into a greater freedom than we could possibly know. And you will not compromise that, nor should we. So today, we leave behind every part of us that's uh, longing to cling to Egypt. And uh, today, we want to be left only with our pursuit of you, loving you, obeying you and flourishing in you because of what Jesus Christ has done. 